So, uh, turn your Bibles, if you're not already there, to Psalm 29. I think it was two summers ago, we had gone camping up in uh, Port Austin area. That would have been three summers ago. Um, I had to come back for work because I didn't have um, I didn't have enough vacation days to stay longer than the time that I did, and so I came on home. And the story that I heard from Kelly and the kids when they got back was uh, quite the story. On my end of things, uh, the rain blew so hard it came in around one of the windows at our old house. So I knew it was a pretty good storm, and uh, obviously I didn't really have cell phone reception there, um, being in a little bit more of a rural area, and so uh, I didn't hear about everything until they were traveling home, but apparently the storm started to roll in, and then the uh, park ranger came around and said, we're probably going to have everybody go ahead and uh, get out of their, uh, get out of their tents and go to some shelter and then the power went out and just different things and the rain was blowing really hard and uh, blowing in really hard the wind was blowing really strong and I caught glimpses of it even just being in the house in Allen Park but uh, certainly if you've ever been caught in a storm like that you recognize the power of it the terror of it uh, if you stand at the edge of a lake or of the ocean and watch a storm roll in you can see the power of it. That's sort of the background, the picture, the idea that we find in Psalm 29. David is speaking about God, and you know, there's some people that'll speculate and say that this was some sort of Canaanite praise hymn that was adapted by David to praise God, and I don't know that that is necessarily the case. There is a sense in which he was aware, I'm sure, of the ways that the Canaanites praised their gods. And there are some of the features of this psalm where it certainly seems that he is subtly mocking their worship of idols. Uh, but I think that the, the focus and the emphasis of the psalm is clearly uh, on the God of the Bible. We start in verse 1. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to His name. Worship the Lord in holy array. Uh, if you turn back a little ways in your Bible, Job chapter 1. Not the same words, but you see a similar phrase in Job 1 and verse 6. It says, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came in among them. Same thing in chapter 2 and verse 1. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. Then we also have in, you don't necessarily have to turn there, Genesis chapter 6. We see the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful. They took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Um, there's some theological objections to that phrase meaning angels in Genesis 6. 
largely the fact that uh, the offspring of angels and people would be sort of these, um, and where does that leave them as far as their spiritual standing before God, that sort of idea. Um, now, there's an interpretation that would say that the angels saw that women were beautiful and sort of this idea of they possessed ungodly men and through their relationship with these women had children. I could see that being a possibility. But um, in Psalm 29, the question is, who are the sons of the mighty? It doesn't say the sons of God, but I think it's clear from the rest of the passage that the one who is mighty is God. And so we could take it as a parallel phrase to sons of God. And so the two options are, he's either calling angels to praise God or he's calling people to praise God. Uh, he uses the word ascribe three times, and then he switches it up by using the word worship. Ascribe is um, it's to uh, count or reckon or uh, recognize, give honor where to do, that sort of idea. So he's, he's saying, ascribe to the Lord what? Glory and strength, the glory due to his name. And then he closes by saying, Worship the Lord in holy array. Now, if we're talking angels, we catch glimpses of what we see, for example, in the book of Revelation. We see um, angels falling down before the throne of God. It says, for example, in uh, Revelation 4 and verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones, 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. There were seven lamps of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne, something like a sea of glass, like crystal in the center, and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And then it describes them and says, Day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him and sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. I would lean toward those being angels in uh, Revelation chapter 4, which, as a quick aside, the idea of casting crowns then would be something that angels do primarily. It's not a not a primary point of what we're looking at, but just something to, to, to think about. But what's the point here? Recognize that God is powerful. Recognize that God is mighty. Recognize that God deserves glory and account that glory to Him through praise, through worship. That's how those first two verses start out. Now, even if David is addressing the angels here, and he very well may be, there are certainly other places in scriptures when we are likewise commanded to worship God in the same way. Um, so that's uh, certainly something to keep in mind. But I think the emphasis on this is about God's exaltedness. And I think the significance of the angels worshiping God uh, is fascinating in the context of the pagan religions around Israel. 
they would have recognized those angels, demons, as deities, as gods. But later in Psalms uh, 76, if I remember correctly, it says, Worship Him, all you gods. It's not acknowledging that there are any false gods, but rather there are those beings who are worshipped by people as gods. David recognizes that they are merely created beings. People will worship idols behind which stand demons. All of them must recognize God's glory, God's majesty, fall down and worship Him, which they will in time do, both those who are actively doing it now and those who will bow before Christ at His coming even when they face their judgment. We see God described seven times in verses uh, 3 through 9, the voice of the Lord. It starts out, The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. And several commentaries take this and look back or look at the idea of this being um, the Mediterranean Sea, which would have been the great water in their day. And it seems that that would fit with the progression of uh, Lebanon, Syrian, Kadesh, and so forth, the storm moving inland from the Mediterranean Sea into the regions north of Israel. And yet I would also call your attention to the fact of Genesis chapter 1, the Spirit of God moved over the face of the waters. So I think that we would not want to miss that connection to the fact that God is over the water from the beginning of time to the end of time, right? God is over all of it as their creator. So, the voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. This is a, what would the right word be? When it says God thunders, it's speaking figuratively. Certainly God does not, it's not as though God can only communicate through the thunder, and yet He stands behind it, He ordains it, He causes it to come about. Which, ironically, today is something that we say, we would tend to argue against this idea today, right? That's a primitive superstition to say that some sort of deity is the cause for the thunder, the cause for the storm, right? That's the attitude that we would have today because we tend to be very um, materialistic, very anti-supernatural. So we would say in society today, oh, the scientific explanation is that you have these two masses of air meeting and then it creates static electricity and then you have lightning and all these sorts of things, which is true. But David is completely accurate in saying God thunders. I think that's important for us to remember. The problem with the pagans was not that they recognized the deity stood behind the thunderstorm, it was that they had the wrong God in view, right? And so we should not think that simply because we have scientific explanations for many of the things in nature, that those are contradictory to the fact that God rules over all of them, or that they somehow exclude His existence. Ask a scientist why everything holds together and you'll see that their explanation for the world quickly fails because we can talk about quarks and particles and all those sorts of things, but at the end the answer is we don't know. And the Bible says it's because God will hold it all with his hand. So those two things are not incompatible. Verse 4, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. Powerful, clearly. Majestic is something where we have this idea again of exalted, of honor. 
I think it goes back to verse 2, the glory due to his name. And so when God speaks, what he speaks is powerful. When God speaks, what he speaks is majestic. Think of the passage in the prophets where it says, my ways are above your ways. My ways are above, my thoughts are above your thoughts. God is majestic. God in his holiness has two aspects. One is his separation from sin. The other is his being above all things. We can be holy like God in the respect of being separate from sin. We cannot be like God in the sense of being above all the creation because we're not God. And that, I think, is the emphasis that's being focused on here in these verses. The storm moves inland from the many waters and it moves over the land. And what does it do? The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. Think of the giant redwoods out in California. I've never been there personally, but I've seen documentaries. Um, and you'll, still, you'll come across huge trees here and there in the eastern half of the United States, but probably none quite so big as those. Picture a storm that came through and knocked all of them flat. For them, the cedar trees in Lebanon were their equivalent of that. Massive trees that seemed secure and stable and this storm sweeping in from the sea knocks them down, breaks their power, shows that God is greater than the creation that seems so majestic to us. Verse 6, He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. These cities to the, uh, to the north of Israel, these regions would have been... Uh, hit by the storm in such a sense that like when you're on the ocean and things are swaying back and forth the the trees would have been swaying the rocks might have been falling down from from hillsides all these sorts of things it's all in motion at the power of God approaching and then verse 7 is a really interesting figure of speech the voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire so it's almost as though he starts with the metaphor of he's knocking the trees down and then it said instead of the trees like we would, we would expect God's power is such that he carves out of the very air flames of fire, lightning, right? And we see his power again in yet another way. Verse 8, the voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. After the lightning comes the thunder. First the wind knocking down the trees, then the lightning bringing forth these flashes of light, then the thunder after the lightning. Um, there was a country song they played during the Super Bowl probably, I don't know, I was probably a teenager. I always thought it was a little bit silly because it said you hear the thunder and then you see the lightning going to strike. It's like, that's backwards, it goes the other way. So the progression, the passage is accurate. Wind, lightning, thunder. What does this thunder do? The thunder is so loud, it says it makes the deer to calve. So the deer that are in the hillsides, hiding in the forest, are so overcome by terror and shock from the sound of the furious storm, the, the noise of the thunder, that they just give birth to their young right then and there. It strips the forests bare knocks down the trees. You've ever seen the destruction after a tornado or after a terrific windstorm, just branches everywhere, things in upheaval. It's, it's like somebody just scrapes the hillside sometimes in places. 
And then the end of verse 9 seems to be a move to a different place. It says, and in his temple, everything says glory. Is this the physical temple? Probably he's bringing it back to what it says in verses 1 and 2. God in his temple, God gathered in heaven with the angels. Everything is watching God's power, seeing his power demonstrated in this storm, and their response is glory to God, because verse 2 ascribed to him the glory due to his name. But this is not a new characteristic of God. This is not something that is only true in recent times. Look at verse 10. The Lord sat at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. I think the phrase the Nazbi insert sat as king at the flood is accurate. Uh, uh, the parallel is not in the Hebrew, but I think it fits. Just like God ruled over this small storm, local storm, localized destruction that the people of Israel could look to the north and see God bringing this storm. Ironically, who is the storm not coming upon? It's not coming upon the people of Israel. It's coming upon those to the north who were idolaters in various ways. Jezebel came from that region, brought her idolatry with her when Ahab married her. And so there certainly seems to be this implication of judgment of God on idolaters to the north of Israel. Going back to the flood, we see another previous and even greater judgment in which God not only uh, brought calamity to a small region near Israel, but an upheaval that covered the entire earth. Land masses shift, volcanoes erupt, water pours down and comes up, and the face of the earth is changed by the flood. We don't know exactly what it looked like before. We do have some idea of what it looks like now, obviously. But think about a worldwide flood. People will argue for a localized flood. They'll say there's not enough water in the whole world for it to have been a worldwide flood. But um, I don't think there's any reason for us to argue that, that it was a merely a local flood. Because I think here in this psalm, David is arguing from a lesser to a greater thing. The lesser thing was the storm he saw, or pictured in his mind. The greater thing was the flood that God had already brought on the earth. Uh, why would I say that it was a flood that would have affected the whole earth? Because it said it wiped out everybody except Noah and his family. So, I suppose it could be argued that maybe people only lived on certain parts of the earth, but at the very least it affected all of those parts of the earth. And so it wasn't just a flood like the flood that uh, put water, puts water in your basement or that sort of thing. It's a flood that wiped out life on earth. God sat as king over the flood. Why did God bring the flood? The thoughts of every man, man's heart was only evil continually. Why did God bring the storm? Potentially because of idolatry. What is the proper response in the context of those things? We see the union of God's judgment on sin, the demonstration of His power, and the deliverance of His people in passages like this, and perhaps in even a greater sense in passages that we've looked at in the past, like Second Thessalonians 1. The Lord will come in flaming fire, Pouring out judgment on the earth, giving rest to you who wait for God's deliverance.
The Lord sat as king at the flood. That's back there. God's clearly ruling over this force of nature that he sees right in front of him. The Lord sits as king forever. Why do I say deliverance for his people? Verse 11, the Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. And you come after seeing this picture of the storm and the destruction that it causes and thinking back to the flood and you say, why would he end with strength to his people, bless his people with peace? I think because of what I was just saying. Even God in his judgment on sin, in his pouring out his power across the earth, God has an eye on his people to care for them, to bring peace for them, and to help them. That doesn't always work out according to our timetable in the way that we expect, but we know that what is not made right in the here and now will be made right in God's time in the end of all things. How do we know that? Because Peter says there's a day of judgment coming that the scoffers mock and think will not happen, and God will have a day of reckoning. The prophets talk about it as the day of the Lord. The book of Revelation describes it in various ways. Bowls of judgment, things like that. There will be God settling all things in the end times. And even in the here and now, what are proper responses to God and His majesty? Like David calls the angels to recognize who God is and give Him glory, we have that same responsibility. Like there's this picture of God in the voice of the storm, we ought to see God at work in the world today in all of these different things that we see going on. Does that mean that we see a tornado come to some part of the southeastern, or a hurricane to some part of the southeastern U.S., and we say, God sent that to that part because there was a bunch of people there that weren't following him? I don't know that we can make the connection quite that clearly as could be made in Israel's day when it was clearly, here's this nation of idolaters, here's God's people. But there is a sense in which these sorts of things ought to cause us to pause and say, am I behaving like idolaters? Am I behaving like those who don't honor God? Because the last part of the psalm, if God says he's going to give strength to his people and peace to his people, should at least in our minds raise this question, which side of this am I on? Because God was king back then, God is king now, God will be king forever. Worship Him, make sure.